On episode 36 of DevTalk, I speak to Michael Stonis about essential NuGet packages for your .NET projects. Welcome to another episode of DevTalk. My name is Kerry Lothrop, and today's guest is Michael Stonis. Michael is an architect at 8Bot and also a Microsoft MVP, and I'm really happy to have him on the show. Hello, Michael. Hey, Kerry. Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. You are one of the former Xamarin MVPs, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. They can't take it away from us. I, you can, I guess <laughs> we could say former, but it's always ours, right? No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so you are a person who is really in, in the community. You're doing a lot of uh, community work. Uh, you were also going to go to that summit that, that we all missed out on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, we were all geared up, ready to go. And obviously last minute, everything got pulled back, which is, it's unfortunate. Um, but you know, I, glad that people are staying safe, glad that people are staying healthy. I think, uh, Microsoft made the right call. It's just still sad. <laughs> you know, I guess I still miss it. They did. And in your work, day job, you work in on Xamarin apps, right? Correct. Yeah. Yep. So um, at my company, we, we primarily focus on doing uh, mobile and cloud software. And for us, you know, we're, we're a .NET shop. The clients that we work with are, are .NET. So uh, that means day in and day out. What we're doing is building uh, Xamarin apps on the mobile side. And then on the website, we're doing, you know, Azure, Azure backend, and we've been doing some Blazor and, uh, and IoT things on the front end side there as well. So a lot of experience in the field. I, you know, some of the, the people are doing a lot of community work. They only do, this is their, their nighttime job, just, uh, and during the day, they cannot work on real projects with that technology. So th this is something we should talk about. So how you go about developing these projects and, and what tools you use and yeah, how, do, how you make that five-star app for customers. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, that's exactly kind of what I want to talk about today. Cause what, what I find is, you know, just working with new clients or working with developers new to the .NET stack, you know, they, and this is what I would do the, you know, the same thing if, if I were developing or learning a new language is sometimes you just jump right in and you start writing a lot of code and then you realize like, oh, somebody else maybe wrote the same thing I'm trying to write, or maybe, mm -hmm. you know, maybe there's something that already solves my problem. And kind of what I want to talk about today is some libraries that like we use at our company or that I use personally, whether we're building a front end application or a back end application. And uh, for the .NET world, some of these NuGet packages that we use to be successful there. So not really, you know, I, I figured, you know, there's a lot of NuGet packages that maybe mobile developers are familiar with. If you're a Xamarin developer, you've probably seen Essentials or, you know, you've used one of the really cool UI libraries out there. But what I figured we'd talk about is sort of the, I'll call them the boring libraries that make you successful. You know, the ones that that don't get a lot of glitz and glamour, but when you're when you're writing software, you know, ensures that you're doing it the right way or helps you uh, build out the patterns in a way that uh, becomes easily testable or you know helps your helps your apps become more successful. So that means these are libraries that use both on the client and on the server side. If you're using Azure as your backend, right? It pretty much, yeah. There might be one or two cases for these libraries where we don't do that, but it, by and large, these are just sort of regular .NET libraries uh, that you could use client side, server side, or, or wherever. And that's one of the the cool things about .NET, especially nowadays, is you know when 
at least when I started doing Xamarin development, we didn't have all the nice stuff that we had on the server side. So, you know, I used to come from like, a, um, I used to do a lot of biz talk work and server side work back in the day. And we had all these really cool libraries on the server side. And then on the mobile side, we didn't have those, right? You know, we kind of had some of it, but maybe some of it hadn't been ported over. Um, but nowadays with like .NET standard and, and, and everything like that, a lot of those libraries that maybe only existed in the .NET framework side now just exist in standard and are usable everywhere. So it's kind of a great thing that we have these and we could use them, like I said, client side, server side, you know, anywhere else in between. Yeah, it's really hard to find a library that doesn't support .NET standard right now. And I think it's only going to get better with .NET 5 because if you write a .NET 5 right. library, that's just going to work anywhere. It, it's incredible. You know, it's, uh, again, like when I got started in .NET, it was still like in the .NET 1.1 days. And, you know, I remember messing around with Mono back in the day and it, it felt like forbidden fruit to be running C Sharp or .NET on, on a Linux system. <laughs> um, and now you think about it today in, in .NET or, or C Sharp is kind of like C++ in a lot of ways. It's, it's sort of on every platform supported everywhere. And, you know, with having things like .NET 5 coming right around the corner here to kind of flatten it all out um, and, and make that support even more universal, it's uh, it's crazy to, to think that we've gotten here in, in just, you know, 10 years or so. So it's, it's really exciting. Uh, for me, coming from a C++ background, I, I have to say it's even better than that because cross-platform C++ is typically like also a lot of if defs and, and yeah sure uh, sure <laughs> or if you, if you look at at like uh, what was it called MFC the Microsoft uh, C++ uh, desktop framework mm -hmm. uh, that didn't look like anything like a Linux <laughs> sure, uh, sure. application would look like that was a different different C++ it's a that's a great point yeah yeah I, and I you know yeah I never I didn't really even consider that but yeah that's a great point. So what's the first one on your list? Yeah, so I've got three here. Um, I, I figure we'll start. I've got sort of a, a four different categories. So I've got testing and logging, uh, model development, uh, the repository and service layer, and then the last one is async processing. So I figure we'd start with testing and logging because that's usually um, sort of where, you know, where we start with our applications, I guess. So the first one that I want to talk about, uh, first library I want to talk about then is called Fluent Assertions. And Fluent Assertions is basically uh, in a, uh, a helper library that you could use when writing your unit tests. So if you're doing something like N unit or X unit unit tests, uh, you know that you know basically you would write your, your unit test inside of there, your, your little script to code to test everything out. And then you get to the end of it and you write assert dot something, you know, and it's usually something basic, or I know a lot of times we try to keep those pretty simple. Um, but the problem with that is it, it sometimes can be hard to read the intent of the unit test. Um, if you wrote the unit test name well, like if you use the SUT or system under test style, um, it should describe what it's doing. But sometimes, you know, even with that, uh, going in and seeing all the setup that had to happen and everything like that uh, inside of that, uh, the, in, the test in particular could be a little bit difficult. Mm -hmm. Fluent assertion then gives us a bunch of uh, fluent methods or like these fluently chained methods that we could use inside of our unit test so that we could say, you know, maybe at the end of uh, a test, if we have a string that we're looking at, we, we should say, uh, this string should start with these values. 
and it should also end with these values. Or if it's a, a collection or an enumerable, we could say uh, this collection should have a count of four. So instead of just having kind of like an assert statement at the very end, uh, what you end up with then is uh, like a little bit of a script in a way where you could read through it. And if you have multiple assertions that have to happen, uh, you kind of get like a little story. Uh, and that's something that I, I tend to really like, especially with working uh, in a consulting capacity. You know, uh, you know how it is. You, you kind of you go and you work on some code. You walk away from it for six months or a year or something, and then you have to come back to it later on and re you know remember everything that you were doing. Um, and I find this fluent assertions to be really helpful because I can look at those tests and just kind of read a little script of, oh, here's what was the input, here's what I thought should happen, um, and here's you know uh, what what actually came out of it. So I find this to be uh, really helpful for writing those unit tests. Yeah, we are actually using this in my current .NET Core project. And I, I really like the, the way it, um, it works. For those tests where we, we have like the, the system level tests that are written in spec flow. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, so, so that's the, this Gherkin syntax where everything is actually already in that human readable format that even the, the project manager can read. For that, it doesn't add that much more value. But for the when we get to the unit tests, these are all just C sharp code, and and it's really nice to have that uh, readability there. Yeah, it it makes it more more obvious what you're trying to state. Yeah, it's it it's almost like a spec flow for developers. It's not exactly that, but you know, yeah, sort of yeah. that same kind of like <laughs> give me something that's more human readable. You know, that I that I don't have to think too hard about to to get back into where I was or the intention of what I was trying to do there. But still with some parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you probably couldn't give it to a project manager. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember there was some syntax with, I think, regarding dates that was so, it 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 looked so unreal. Have, have you run into that with fluent assertions? A, a little bit. Is it like the B before and the B after type of stuff? Um, I, I think it was something that you could actually write the date and it looked like a... Um, it, it's not in a string. It's more like in, in a, a full, I have to look that up. <laughs> it, it's pretty neat. You would write like, if you wanted to do, I think it's like, we'll say like the 1st of May, you would do one dot May. Oh, that's right. And then I can't remember if it's another dot after that, or if it's a method or if it's like parentheses and then you give it the yeah. year. Right. It's pretty cool though. Um, so they wrote extension methods for integer, right? <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. And this is actually the way uh, dates are spelled in German. So you have the the number, then the dot, and then mm. the month name. So it fits perfectly for German. <laughs> it's kind of nice for you guys, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I was like, what? <laughs> what is this voodoo? Because it doesn't look like it, it should compile. Totally. Yeah. That's it's right. what, that's, but, that's what I was thinking about. Thinking about. Yeah. From a readability perspective, though, it's it's quite nice, you know, because it's yeah. it's fairly you know fairly opaque, you know, it's it's right there, it's what you think it is. So yeah, so that's that's a good find. Yeah, I, I really endorse that one too. The uh, the next one then is one that we use quite a bit early on in projects, and this is our Fake It Easy library. There's a lot of different mocking libraries. So if you know if you're building out your .NET code, and maybe you're early on in a project and you don't have the server side of things set up yet, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but we still want to make our application run and, and still behave or, you know, give us some expected behavior. Or if you're writing unit tests, uh, it's actually probably the place where we use these the most, honestly. And we'll use this library called Fake It Easy to uh, mimic out the behavior of an interface or mimic out the behavior of some system. So if we've got uh, an interface, so I'll just call it like I API client. Uh, what I could do is I could go in with fake it easy. I can say, build me an instance of IAPI client. And when you call the authenticate user method, return X and Y value, right? Uh, and it's really easy without having to go and, um, you know, build out like a mo- like a full mock implementation of some client or have to do anything like that. The faker library kind of handles a lot of the boilerplate type of code you would need there. And you could just sort of inject in um, the results as you would need them to be. Uh, Really helpful for, like I said, early on in a project when we're just kind of defining interfaces and getting things stubbed out, but Mm -hmm. way more useful in unit tests and things like that, where you need to be able to specifically test maybe like a timeout or, you know, specifically test uh, certain input values or certain output values from a system. Fake it easy gives you just a super easy way to mock out your interfaces or mock out those systems uh, and get the data in and out as you would expect. Okay, I have not heard of that one. Uh, is it comparable to, or what are the differences to other libraries that do that? Like, for example, MockQ? Yep, uh, it's similar, just a different take. Um, we okay. we like this one. I, you know, there's like... Uh, uh, what's the other one? N substitute would be another uh, mm-hmm. option here. It, it's just a mocking library. Um, we we like this one again because it's got like a, a kind of neat fluent syntax to it, where it it feels like you kind of uh, make like a builder type of object, where you say, "Give me this interface," and then chain together a series of uh, fluent methods on it to show the the intention that you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. But but similar, if you've used like. Uh, uh, mock, or if you've used and substitute, uh, very similar to one of those libraries. Okay, that, neat. I'll have a look at that one. The um, the other one that we use then. So the last one here for testing and logging, and this this usually goes again for kind of like early in a project uh, type of stub out is called Bogus. Um, it's got a funny name, uh, but <laughs> Bogus is a fake data generator. So a uh, very similar kind of idea, like if you're, you know, uh, early on in a project, maybe the APIs aren't up and running yet, or you're just trying to build out a UI and, and you want to get some data in it that represents something that, that looks semi-real, uh, the bogus library can be used to generate, uh, popu- you know, generate objects with populated data in them. Mm-hmm. So... For example, if you needed to create a user object and you wanted to make sure that their email address looked like a real email address, uh, that they maybe had like a unique uh, ID in there for their employee ID, you know, that they've got like a little blurb of text about them. uh, The bogus library can be configured to say, for this user object, populate these properties with this type of data, you know, so give a real first name for the first name field, give a real... Mm -hmm. Uh, email address for the email address field, uh, but just generate it on the fly. So again, we find this to be like super helpful, just getting up and running, getting some fake data uh, available to you, um, just so you could keep on doing your development or test out certain layouts or certain uh, aspects of uh, of your application, maybe before you have that connection to the API or before you got access to the database to to populate it with real data out there. 
So this does more than the lorem ipsum. It, it yeah, it's like the super powered lorem ipsum, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> where where you don't just get sort of gibberish words, you can have it give you um like real names. Like you could say, for example, generate uh a male first name or generate uh you know a female first name or mm -hmm. uh pick random numbers and and do things like that. So it gives you it's sort of like a super powered lorem ipsum. So it sounds like a good application for machine learning, actually. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right, right? You know, get um, give me something that generates like uh, uh, something that looks like real words, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but aren't exactly right. Uh, that actually would be a good application for some machine <laughs> learning. But uh, like I said, re really good uh, just to help you kind of, you know, beef out that, that fake data. Um, and you could also do things. What's kind of neat is you could supply it like uh, a random seed. So if you need to test something out and you've got a specific use case, um, say, for example, like, you know, using the German language, sometimes you guys have uh, very long single singular words, right? Um, mm -hmm. If you need to test something out uh, and make sure that your UI looks good and does like proper text wrapping and things like that, um, you could generate your fake data with a seed value and always use that same seed value. So that if you needed to do like a particular test case with it, or if you needed to do something, um, you know, like if, if we're doing a UI test, for example, uh, on the Xamarin side, we'll, we'll generate screens and, and give it data with specific seeds just to make sure that the layout wraps data correctly or is displaying uh, data properly, even with different values supplied in it, uh, which is pretty neat. And does the, does the bogus data go beyond just text? Uh, yeah, you could do things like, um, uh, so, uh, text values, you've got, um, uh, number generators. So it's I, got, I was thinking, uh, maybe images, for example, you, uh, there is, a uh, some components in there to get URLs for images, but it mm -hmm. itself, I don't okay. believe will generate an image, but it, it's got a pointer. I can't remember. It's for like, uh, avatar. Uh, okay. generating API and it knows how to generate those URLs for you. So okay. if those URLs um, work, then that's, that's great. Yeah. 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 It's a super helpful, you know, it, like I said, it's super helpful. If you, if you know what your object looks like, uh, but mm -hmm. maybe you just don't have access to the data, just gives you a way to get up and running there and, and actually see things as, as they might look when you, once you hit a, a production or once you have those services available. Great. I will link to all three of those in awesome. the show notes. Perfect. Yep. Yeah. And I'll make sure you get all that. I'll give you all this, uh, all these as well. Okay. Uh, the next one is one of my favorite libraries that, uh, whenever somebody doesn't know about it, I always kind of freak out about, um, this one's called Fody. Are you familiar with Fody? I know I, I have not used it, but I know what it does. Awesome. Okay. So Fody is, uh, essentially like a, uh, compile time weaving library. So what it can do, um, for example, uh, what, what's pretty common that we have to do, I'll say, is, is uh, mobile.net developers, is we need to add inotify property change to objects. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they're objects that we're gluing up to the user interface, and we want to get notifications you know, when that object gets updated and, and allow things to communicate. Uh, and normally when you want to do that, you've got to write a bunch of boilerplate code. You go in, you add the interface, you add the event, you go through all your properties and da, 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 you know, make sure that they raise change notification or call your, um, your event out there. 
what you could do with Fodi then is instead of having to write all of that in your source code, is you could add a helper library to Fodi called Fodi Property Changed. And what it can do then is it can inspect your uh, code. And with the example of like I notify property changed, it will look at uh, classes that implement that interface. Mm -hmm. And then it will at compile time inject in all of the logic on your properties to raise change notifications. So your properties, if you were to look at them from like a source code perspective, just look like regular plain old .NET properties. But after they get compiled, if you were to disassemble your library and look at it, you'll see that it has all the logic in there to do all of the I notify property change workflow. So, yeah. um, it, and it's really neat because it does, you know, that's just one example, but there are tons and tons of different Fodi plugins or add-ins uh, that you can get to do, uh, you know, all kinds of different things like checking assertions. Um, if you're doing things with async and await, you could tell it to add configure await false to all of those <laughs> calls. Um, so if you've got like a server side piece of code and you just don't yeah. want to write that code, uh, <laughs> let it do all that stuff for you. Um, just a bunch of like really neat plugins to uh, kind of just get rid of a lot of that crufty or that repetitive boilerplate code that we write over and over and over again. Um, and just sort of clean up our code a little bit for us from a, from a visibility perspective. It is uh, kind of, if you don't, if you're looking at the code and you don't know if Fodi is there, then it might add some uh, um, confusion, I guess, to the whole situation. That That is correct. Yeah. The, Cause yeah, it, the code, you know, it, right. Like, especially with I notify property change, it just looks like mm -hmm. regular code. The only way that you would even really know that it's in there is you'll get the NuGet package referenced, and then there is an XML file that gets included in your project. And the XML file basically just lists off the uh, add-ins that will run as part of compilation. So yeah, it, it unfortunately, that that's sort of the one drawback to it is discoverability. You kind of need to know that it's in there to know yeah. that it's doing something. Mm -hmm. Do you know how it relates to C-sharp source generators that were recently announced? You know, I, I don't. And I, I asked myself that exact same question the other day, and I don't have an answer to it yet. <laughs> I put it on okay. my task list because it feels like something that would um, fit right in with that or potentially replace, you know, the source generators might replace something like this. Um, but I, I, as soon as I saw that, this was the first thing that came to mind. Um, but I, I really don't know 100% how they exactly would relate to each other. Okay. I I think Fodi, is is that on the intermediate language level? So it's at a later point. Is that true? I believe so. Yeah, the and inner workings of it. Sounded, yeah, by the title, it sounded like C-sharp source, source generators. They were like before that step. They were still on the C-sharp side. So it might be a little bit different. Yeah, I, the the inner workings of it. To be honest with you, uh, I'm not fully sure. It's it's magic. Um, no, I'm just kidding. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where it, where it actually falls in during the compilation. Um, yeah, but yeah, I th it it might. Uh, you know, I, I would just be be guessing anyway. I I think it manipulates the IL level, but um, I'm not 100 percent sure. So. I will link to the C sharp source generators. They were just announced this week as an early preview, so uh, it's it's. Uh, I wasn't expecting you to have full insights <laughs> into that. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned though that though because that was the first thing that came to my mind was like, mm -hmm. hmm, I wonder if this would you know 
go past Fody or, you know, could we use this like in the reactive world, we've got some code that, that uh, parses events and turns them into new code. I wonder if we could use that to replace some of the, the old code that we have out there. So I, I think they're interesting. I just still definitely new, new to me. So, yeah. Okay. But that, that's a good find. I, I've hesitated introducing that to, to um, uh, add that bit of a complexity that, uh, or it, it makes the code simpler, but it also hides some of the complexity. I'm, and I'm, I'm always a bit torn uh, yeah. to, to use that or not. And uh, I think if you have a team that doesn't rotate a lot, then that's probably a really good idea. Yep. Yeah. And I, I was in the same place as you um, because I, I, you know, I, I fully agree with the discoverability and especially like you said, like if, you, if you've got a team where you've got a lot of interchangeable people who maybe wouldn't know to find that this might not mm-hmm. be the, the best solution for them. Um, but if everybody's on board with it and knows about it, um, it, like I can't go back to writing a full on, I notify property change class anymore, you know, like the, <laughs> I, I can't bring myself to do it. <laughs> this is this has replaced that for me. So that's like editing C sharp code in Notepad now. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we could do it, but why mm-hmm. would you do it? You know, totally. It's <laughs> a great point. Nice. Yeah. Uh, the the next library then uh, that we use is Nota Time. Mm-hmm. Nota Time. Uh, you know, if if you feel like you have a good grasp on working with date time or date time offset or dealing with dates, the chances are that you, you probably don't, you know, (laughs) like, and that's, that's kind of how I felt for a long time. And then we had, you know, we had clients that spread all across the U S and clients that are doing work globally. And you realize that getting like one unified representation of a time is actually pretty difficult you know, when we were looking for how to deal with this, you know, we, we were kind of looking around like, well, should we use date time? Should we use date time offset? And then I, I started noticing posts by a guy named John Skeet, who, <laughs> if you're not familiar, is, you know, like uh, on Stack Overflow or just in the .NET community in general is um, prolific, right? I mean, if if you go on to Stack Overflow and you search him up, he's got, I don't know, God mode status for, for all of his answers that he has and everything like that. He's the, the, the top contributor. Yeah, he has the most points there. It, and and he actually is one of the main developers on this Nota Time library. And I <laughs> thought like, when I noticed that, I was like, if John Skeet feels passionate enough to have to build a time management, you know, or sort of like a t- time object management or date time object management library, there's probably a lot about date times that I'm not considering, you know, <laughs> like, so yeah. we, we use this library a lot, um, on server side and client side, you, you could use it essentially as a replacement, uh, in .NET for date time or for date time offset. Um, it works well with things like JSON.net, um, and other serialization technologies. Um, and it, it basically just gives you, I would say like a more complete, object for working with dates and times. Um, and it, and it handles a lot of those things like, uh, you know, if we need to worry about display of a date and a time and, you know, at that current locate or at the location that they were at, or at that date and time that they were at, uh, would it have been daylight savings time or, you know, a, a something like that? It, it handles a lot of those manipulations and conversions. Uh, and we just don't have to think about it. It it sort of does the I'll say like the right thing uh, in a lot of in a lot of cases there. 
I'm, I'm also a big fan. I, I mean, the, the original implementation of daytime, they, they left out a lot of the things there. I mean, you, you can set a daytime to UTC or to local. Right. And that, that doesn't solve the world's problems. <laughs> that, 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 that was like, you know, that was like in a big aha moment for me, which seems ridiculous, <laughs> but you know, we would save stuff as UTC time. And then they'd be like, well, that was, you know, that happened in the spring of last year and we want to show it for when it happened there. But I don't have the context or, you know, you don't exactly have the context of like, was it in this time zone or in, if it was in that time yeah. zone, were they in daylight savings time or not? Or, you know, or, or things like that. Um, where this adds a lot of that functionality and you just, you don't have to think about it anymore, which is, yeah. which is quite nice. I've used it in a, an app we built where we, we used like the, the flight aware API to, mm-hmm. to get flight data and, and to track things and uh, flights taking off internationally and, and landing somewhere else. And, and it was, it was really uh, worth uh, to, worth it to use that library because th- that there's so much complexity there, and you don't want to think about that. And and if you try to implement it yourself, then you're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Go up against what you know a library that that John's been working on for years and years and years? I mean, come on, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> why, why why go against the current? So. We have an, an episode on that, episode 30, with Matt Johnson-Pint, who works on the time problems at Microsoft and on Azure. And um, yeah, we, we talk about some of the difficulties there. So that, that's worth listening to if you're interested in that. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's a it, it, wonderfully complex topic, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is, uh, I guess, a good and a bad thing. We should we should yeah. all just switch to uh, Swatch Watch Time, if you're familiar with that. <laughs> Oh yeah, the, the thousand dots a day. <laughs> a beats, or, yeah, beats, beats per yeah. day. Yeah, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, we're getting off topic, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Next library that we use then is uh, it, this is one we use primarily or more on the UI side of things, uh, but this is a library called Humanizer, and what Humanizer does is it allows us to take uh, I would say sort of representation agnostic code. Uh, or usually like display for things like strings or enums and gives us, uh, or, or, you know, numbers as well, and gives us a way to translate those values into a locality. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we're talking about, you know, something like the difference in displaying currency, um, you know, in the U.S. here, we might be using decimal places and commas in certain spots. And in Germany, it might be flipped, right? You know, where you've got commas yeah. uh, in different in a different spot. It is, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, the Humanizer library kind of does a lot of that work for us. It'll do things like managing title case or uh, managing the displays of date times for us, so that uh, we could take it, sort of give it an output language type, and say, "Hey, can you take this string or you know take this uh, date?" and humanize it for uh, DE, right? Humanize it for German. And it will uh, change that, you know, uh, time span or date or whatever it is into something that's readable and usable in that language. The language support is huge. I I was just trying to see if I could find out the number of sort of -of out-of-the-box languages that it comes with, and it's in the tens, at least, of languages. So it's pretty cool. uh, to be able to get that. And, you know, even it, it, as we're finding here, even when we're working on code, you know, or for applications for people in the U.S., we're needing to support different languages more and more. You know, Spanish is becoming more prevalent for us. 
Um, even like in the Chicagoland area, we have a lot of Polish speakers as well. Um, and this just gives us a kind of a nice, easy, quick win for us to, uh, to get that data, get it formatted for the user uh, and not have to do a lot of like manual lifting on that side. It sounds like a good companion to note at time. I would agree. Yeah. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's more, I feel like, um, uh, humanizer is more like a runtime evaluator, you know, for just getting the display there, you might store mm -hmm. it in an agnostic way or, you know, display agnostic way. And, but yeah, definitely a great companion with note time out there. Yeah. Okay. Great find. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Um, all right, let's shift over then into what I'll call like the repository or the service layer side of code. And so this is where I know, you know, whenever we're building a mobile app, this is where we end up spending a lot of time here. So mm -hmm. the first one that I want to talk about is LightDB. Uh, LightDB is a sort of single file, serverless, uh, schemaless database, all written in .NET that runs inside of your application. So no separate server runtime. Um, you know, if we're talking about like a mobile application, for example, um, a lot of times we're using something like SQLite and we're having to have C libraries to bridge to communicate in our .NET library over to, you know, the C library or the C implementation of SQLite or the use that C bridge to communicate to SQLite. Mm -hmm. The cool thing about LightDB is that it's 100% written in uh, C Sharp, so it's 100% managed code. It also is schemaless, right? So what I love about this is that we can build an application that's very pliable. I don't have to worry about database migrations. I don't have to worry so much about, um, you know, having to deal with, oh, you know, this column, I forgot to put this column in. We've got to um, do a migration from V1 of the, of the uh, database to V2 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I basically can just amend my object. So it's, it's, it's almost like, if you've used Cosmos or Azure's Cosmos, or if you've used DocumentDB before, it's like that, but for your application. Really helpful, very straightforward to use. Um, and, and it feels like a, like a great modern um, sort of persistent storage solution for applications. Uh, we've been uh, pretty happy with doing it here, uh, with using this here for about the last year or so with, with client work. So it runs on the server side, or you, or in the in the mobile app, or whatever you have running as a as a client. Correct. Yep. Yeah. So great. If you're you know if you're using um, like SQLite today, or uh, yeah SQLite today, or if you're using like Realm DB or, or a different database solution, mm -hmm. it's a great replacement. Maybe I don't want to say like replacement, like those are bad solutions or anything, uh, but it's a it's a great sort of .NET first solution for doing data storage. And you could, yeah, you could use it on the server side if, you know, if you just need like a really simple data storage solution on the server side, you could use it there. Uh, but we find that we use this a lot for our uh, Xamarin clients to do things like caching of data, um, you know, you know semi-persistent storage of data for doing like an online offline solution. Uh, very easy to integrate with uh, and very easy to keep track of, um, you know, uh, where your data is at and everything like that without having to you know, build out a whole separate database for our app, if that makes sense. You just kind of take your .NET objects, throw it at it and call it a day, which is cool. Okay. So you, you don't, I was, uh, that was my question. You're, you don't pass it a JSON string or something like that. You pass it your object and worry about how it persists that and 
you when you uh, retrieve data or query data, you get .NET objects back. Correct. Yeah. It, internally, okay. it uses uh, BSON to persist everything off. Mm -hmm. uh, but but when we interact with it, it's um it, it's sort of like if you've ever used the SQLite net library for uh, Xamarin development, where you kind of say, I would like a collection and my collection should be of this type of object, you know, like mm -hmm. a user object. And then you could even query on it. It's got, you know, query support using like a, a SQL like uh, SQL light, a SQL like syntax. There we go. Um, yeah. Or you could use just uh, like a link style syntax as well to query into it. Uh, but mm -hmm. you're always dealing with objects, you know, or almost unless you want to do something a little bit more low level with it, you could always use it and just kind of write link queries to get to your data, which is pretty cool. Cool. I have not tried it, but it sounds similar to Realm in a way. Yeah, very similar. Right. Yep. Yeah. I, the big difference I would say is Realm is uh, sort of like a uh, more cross-platform library where it's built and you could use it if you were writing uh, native iOS applications or native Android applications, mm -hmm. whereas uh, LightDB is built ground up for .NET. So if you know that you're only going to be in a .NET ecosystem, uh, you just don't have to worry about any other additional dependencies or uh, like a bindings library or anything like that. It's just pure, pure .NET. Okay, awesome. But yeah, conceptually very similar there. The next library then is one called Akavash. Uh, and Akavash is sort of uh, another storage library. So what's neat about Akavash, and we, we find this a lot in our mobile applications where we have sort of an online, offline bit of functionality there, mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, you need to get data. We'll say, you know, you're, you're building something for an event system and we need to go pull down our events. And let's say the user leaves the page and comes back to it 30 seconds later. Well, do I really need to call to the API again and go get that data? Or, you know, is it, is it likely to have changed? It, you know, chances are it probably hasn't. And we could use a library like Akavash to build and do sort of uh, temporary storage of data or, you know, semi-persistent key value storage of data uh, to help us make our apps more uh, efficient. So, you know, if I know that, you know, realistically these events change once a day, we'll say, uh, what I could do is I could uh, use Akavash to say, go get me the events. And if you've, uh, if we don't have any events, go and retrieve them, you know, via an API or some other system. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we already have events, let me know how long it's been since we've had them. And, you know, if we give it a timeout, we'll say that the timeout's for, uh, you know, uh, a day or something like that. If we're less than that timeout, just give me whatever I've got cached locally and we'll go along our way. And so it manages all of that decisioning and everything like that underneath the sheets so that as a developer, you know, or, you know, as a consumer or, or you know, a UI developer, I would say, um, I could just say, go give me what you think the latest version of those events are or that data is. And it will just come back with whatever it thinks is, is the right thing based on my cache time out there. So really, really helpful for, for kind of just doing that temporary caching um, without having to do a bunch of database setup or invalidation logic and all those, those, you know, kind of difficult things. It's already got that wrapped up there for us. Okay. D does it support that I ask it to give me an object and it will give me the cached version, but it will also in the meantime, try to fetch a newer version and maybe tell me that uh, there's a newer version available in the meantime. 
it, it does. Yeah. So okay. it, um, underneath the sheets. Uh, so the, I will say the, the core API for this is actually written using reactive extensions. So mm -hmm. the, if you want That's to- That's because of the author, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Annabeth's one of the it, many- That's exactly writers. right. Correct. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. so, yeah, you, you figured it out quickly. <laughs> Everything's going to be reactive there. Yeah. And so, yeah, so the idea would be you could use the async and await type functionality uh, that's supported there. You know, reactive extensions supports that. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to have that sort of fetch and get latest or give me the cached and get latest, you could use the reactive side of it to uh, give you the, the most recent data that it has and in the background, get that data and send you a notification when it receives that. So Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Very cool. Very helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next library is one called Poly. And uh, Poly kind of goes along with that same kind of idea of you know, especially when we're building mobile applications, there's there's no guarantee that you're going to be online all the time. And so if we're building an application that needs to communicate to an API or a third-party system, um, you know, when I, when I first got started doing mobile development, it wasn't something that I thought about all the time that, hey, you're not always connected to the internet or, hey, I can't always get access to these services. And so uh, what the Poly library does is it gives us uh, different, Resilience policies, I think, is their terminology that they use. Mm -hmm. The idea, though, is that it gives you different ways to retry or uh, attempt to get data again gracefully. So if you, you know, try to call an API, you could say something as simple as retry five times. You know, maybe you didn't get it, retry it, you know, uh, but just wait and, and do it five times. You could also do things like, uh, you know, retry, but with a buffer every time. So Maybe the first retry, you attempt to do it in one second, and then the next one is in three seconds or five seconds and eight seconds and kind of along that way there. So you can uh, adjust how you do those retries. And it's got a bunch of, a bunch of different built-in sort of uh, patterns for managing those retry policies depending mm -hmm. on your needs out there. Uh, you could even do things like, say, if, uh, if I attempt to get this data and I get a timeout, maybe give me, uh, maybe use one retry policy, but if I uh, attempt to get this data and I get a server exception, maybe I reach the server, but something was bad with it from there, I use a different retry policy. So just a bunch of really good code to make your, uh, your applications a, a bit more resilient, uh, which I find to be extremely helpful. Um, you know, it, especially in the mobile development world, online, offline is always a big thing. And mm -hmm. this just gives us a really great way to support that uh, in a very graceful manner. If I want to use that, do I call poly and then hand it like some Lambda functions for it to to use or or does it do the calls for me and I just tell it uh, get, get this data from some server? You, yeah, so basically what you do with poly is you create a policy. So you would say like, uh, you know, here's a policy for this workflow. And at the very mm -hmm. end of that policy workflow, you would give it some um, work to go do, right? So you would say, here's the unit of work that I want to complete. So you kind of, again, in a very fluent manner, you kind of say, here's what, I, here's what I want to have happen if things go bad. And here's mm -hmm. what I want to have happen, you know, or here's the block of code that I want to execute uh, in a normal operation. Okay. So you kind of, yeah, one, one big glue of code there or one policy attached with everything there. And that's where the name comes from. Uh, yep. Yeah. And it's got a cute little icon. <laughs> <laughs> everything too for... Uh, like Polly the Parrot out there. So mm -hmm. pretty neat. Cool. 
Uh, next library that we, we find to be extremely useful here is Serilog. Uh, it is a logging library. I, I don't want to say a ton about Serilog. Um, just want to say more about uh, you should be doing structured logging in your applications. Um, this happens to be the library that we use. Um, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people use log for net. You know, they use... Uh, just That's just been discontinued, actually. Has <laughs> is, is it really? Okay. Yeah, like, like two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Geez. Um, mm -hmm. So don't use log for net, but there's, right. the, you know, there's other logging. You know, I know Microsoft's got some logging providers and things like that. I, I called out serial log. This is the one that we use. We've been, you know, we've been using it for years. But mm -hmm. I, I really, really, really uh, recommend using some kind of structured logging library. Uh, we find this one to be pretty easy. You, you basically just create, uh, they've, they've got an interface that you work against, and then you just write to that interface and you could have different log syncs. So you could send data to like a debug console. If, if you're in a debug mode, uh, you could ship you know uh, information out to Azure or ship it to the file system as well. Uh, but mm -hmm. just gives you like a really nice way to do structured logging so that, you know, when things go wrong, um, none of us ever write code that goes wrong, right? But uh, if something were to go wrong, um, you have a way to go back, see what happened um, and, and have it in like a nice parsable way. It's not just a bunch of console write line statements or, you know, some custom text file format that we've put together, you know, that a developer put together. It's a nice structured way that we could use to to ship this data and then parse it using like a, a application insights or you know a, a different third party system um, that can read these logs and and we could actually see what happened right. We don't have to just guess anymore as to what was going on there. We could see the full workflow. Um, serial log, like I mentioned, the the thing that I really like about it is that it has a, a ton of built in uh, what they refer to as syncs. And that's just the different places where you could send your logs off to. So, you know, if you need to send things to Amazon or to uh, Azure Analytics, um, Application Insights, whatever it is, um, even email or, or something simple like that, they've got a ton of different options pre-built out there for you to, to ship that data off to. Nice. So that sounds like it is a full replacement for Log4Net for those of those who just found out that it's discontinued. <laughs> I, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got yeah. great support across platform too. So, you know, we use this on the server side as well as the mm -hmm. client side. So great. Uh, it's awesome to have something that is uh, pretty, you know, implementation agnostic out there uh, for you. Okay, cool. Okay. So the last ones that I want to talk about then are around async processing. Um, this is something that I think is difficult and becoming more increasingly difficult for people to manage and work around. Um, and there's a couple libraries I just want to point out to people that if you're building um, an application where you've got a lot of eventing in it, or you've got a lot of, you know, async and await calls inside of it that are doing a lot of processing and things like that, you, you may want to consider these just to help uh, kind of simplify your life or, or potentially help you kind of wrangle all that. Uh, the first library that I want to call out is from Microsoft. It's actually been around for a good long time. I'm going to say since maybe 2011 or so. Uh, and it's called TPL Dataflow or Task Parallel Library Dataflow. Um, have you ever come mm -hmm. across this one? I have looking for a replacement for our um, concurrent queue oh, mechanism. Sure. Yeah, or, or like, like an, um, a blocking collection 
replacements. <laughs> it's yeah, both great examples for where you might need this. So if mm -hmm. if you've got like a asynchronous workflow um, or a, a concurrent workflow that needs to happen where you've got to, uh, you know, say you get back a block of data and it's got a hundred items in it and you need to go do some work on those hundred items. Um, what I've seen people do is do like a, a task dot run in a, inside of a for loop and mm -hmm. try to do processing there. And that always scares me because you're just firing off a bunch of tasks and there's no management around it. And how mm. many of these are running at a time or, or something like that? Or, um, or in addition, I guess, um, you need to get all that processing, get it, uh, get the workflow set for it. But then maybe you need to aggregate data together or you need to send data down different paths if it was successful or if it had a certain data value in it. The, uh, the TPL data flow provides sort of these, uh, they refer to them as sort of like blocks or processing blocks to uh, send data into them, to take action against that data, to group the data together, to uh, send data down different paths. So if you have, like, like I mentioned, there are kind of multiple different processing paths, uh, you could send, the, uh, send it out based on the, uh, the values inside of your objects. And you could build these like really complex, um, extremely concurrent systems with just a little bit of code, right? So it, it, it's not like... Um, you know, if I if I kind of think through it in my head, you know, building this big asynchronous system is uh, very scary, right? <laughs> Especially if you're doing yeah. something on the server side and it's got multiple steps to it. Uh, kind of going back to like my like I mentioned in the you know uh, my past, I used to work on a system called BizTalk a lot, and we would build these things called orchestrations where you had sort of a value input, you had some branching paths where you would do some workflow in it, and then you might have an output message at the end of it. And mm -hmm. this is sort of like the a, a very simplified version of that orchestration where, you know, I, I've got that input, maybe fan out, fan in, um, and it just simplifies a lot of that logic. Uh, the other thing that allows us to do is, is to control, you know, degrees of parallelism. So if I've got something that needs to uh, only be sort of a, in a singular fashion, I can control it there. If I know that I could split it out and do, you know, multiple concurrently, I could instruct it to do that as well. Um, additionally, it allows us to do things like ordered delivery. So, you know, sometimes we'll have code in our applications where we need to lock up async code. And that could be problematic because we'll use like a semaphore, for example, or we'll use uh, some other kind of async lock mechanism. Um, and those are non-deterministic, right? So, you know, the order in which they get processed isn't guaranteed. Um, using something like Dataflow, though, I could build a lock where I could send in a message and I can guarantee that the first message that came in is going to be the first message that comes out of it, uh, which is, uh, you know, really handy and, and helpful for doing, uh, you know, just your data processing. So it's uh, a library. It's, it definitely gets complicated. We, you know, we could do a whole other podcast on it just by itself for sure. Yeah. Uh, I just want to throw it out though, because I feel like it's, uh, you know, it's one of those underutilized libraries uh, in just such a really great uh, uh, set of, of tools that are inside of there that I feel like people aren't um, um, using maybe as much as they could. Yeah. Well, I, I ran across it looking for, um, we had a blocking collection in our code where it's, it's that's also part of .NET 4. Um, mm -hmm. You uh, you have basically two tasks or two threads, and one uh, is is like in a for each loop, 
looping of that blocking collection and it just always stops until something comes into the collection and then we'll continue. Right. right. And uh, it's not very efficient. And uh, when you look at those benchmarks, what are the alternatives to that? TPL data flow always shows up. And uh, yeah, that's, I, I tried an implementation for that and then it turned out our bottleneck was somewhere else. So oh, sure. I left, left it as it is. <laughs> But uh, sure. it's it looked very powerful, yeah. Yeah, it will. You know, again, it's uh, it's one of these things. We use a client side, server side. We you know we used it server side recently for doing some. Um, we we were working on like a chatbot type application, mm-hmm. and we needed to fan out a bunch of calls to different third party services and then aggregate their data together, and it just made that whole process a breeze. So, um, nice. but it it is definitely one of those libraries where you look at it and you got to like spend some time to figure out. What, what would I actually almost use this for? But once you kind of have it, you get that aha moment. And you're like, I, I'll use this everywhere. You know, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's worth the investment. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah. The uh, the next library that I'm going to put in the exact same category uh, as TPL Dataflow is, is my fi- favorite library is Reactive Extensions. Um, always talk about it all the time. Um, Reactive Extensions is just a great way to wrap up, you know, if you've got a bunch of... Uh, eventing in your application, if you have a bunch of asynchronous processing in your application where uh, you need to build flows of, you know, my user clicked on a button, I need to call some external system, I need this to run on a background thread, or I need this to, to send a notification on the user interface thread. Um, this is my library that is my, like, Batman's utility belt. Uh, it solves every problem that I ever have. somehow (laughs) whenever I'm writing code, whether it's just async code, whether it's eventing code. Uh, Again, the reactive extension is probably too big for, uh, for a full conversation for, you know, it's, it's a whole conversation by itself there as well. Um, But just one of my most favorite things it's, you know, I, I, again, like in the .NET world, I feel like it's massively underutilized. If you go to different platforms, like even, you know, JavaScript, or if you if you look at some of the other uh, development that's going on in the mobile world on the Android and, and iOS side of things, it's really catching on and becoming popular out there. Um, and I just really want to, whenever I get a chance, I always just want to give a shout out to Reactive <laughs> Extensions and uh, and implore people to give it a give it a look there. So, do you still use regular .NET events? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the the cool thing about um, reactive extensions is like even even if you're just using regular .NET events in an application um, or consuming an application that raises events, um, you know, one of the one of the more difficult things or some of the more difficult things that we have with eventing in .NET is cleaning up subscriptions. You know, when do I minus equals this event handler? Um, mm-hmm. And reactive extensions gives us a nice easy way that's disposable to clean up all those. Um, or, you know, sometimes if you're writing like, uh, if you've got some code, you know, sort of like a user interface code, you kind of write the subscription for the event, maybe up at the top near your constructor or some initialization code. And then you've got a method who knows, you know, a hundred lines down somewhere that's actually doing the handling for that code. Right. Mm. Um, reactive extensions, you, you, it's very fluent, uh, fluently written. So you would see where you subscribe to that code. You would see where you take action against that code. And then you very clearly can see what you would use to uh, clean up or remove that that subscription once you're all done with it. So um, it's handy just all over the place. Um, You know, outside of even just events and things like that, if you're doing asynchronous programming, uh, you could use it for doing things like catching uh, exceptions in asynchronous code and supplying retry logic. So similar to what we talked about earlier with Polly, uh, you mm-hmm. can do some of that 
almost exactly out of the box with reactive extensions. It's, uh, it fits in really well with an async and await uh, workflow. I'm also a big fan, but I have to say, uh, it's also something that you don't want to introduce into a team where the team changes a lot. Because <laughs> sure, I, I sure. have had that happen twice that uh, the reactive extensions part was removed out of the project uh, because they couldn't grasp it sure. fully, the, the team sure. taking over. Sure. And um, they had some problems with the code and then they thought it must be the reactive, reactive extensions that's causing this. They they tore it all out and the problem was still there. And then they finally <laughs> found the root cause of that, but they never bothered putting it back in because they, they, it was always, always, uh, yeah, they blamed everything on that. So it's, um, I, I, it, it, again, you know, kind of like I mentioned with that TPL data flow, it's one of those things where, and you, I'm sure you've gone through this as well. I know when, when I first learned about reactive extensions, I spent, like weeks kind of floating in and out of my head of like, I know that this code is cool and <laughs> Anna's been working on it. So it's definitely cool, yeah. but I, I couldn't figure out like, what, what the heck do I do with it? Or how, how do I really use it? And then, you know, I, I just did some, some prototyping and some sample code on my side. And once it like clicked in, it was, you know, just an eye opening moment. But I totally agree. If, if you don't have that time to invest into it or, if you've got a team where people are in and out and maybe they're not familiar with it, it's, it may not always be the right tool, but um, if you've got a pretty consistent team and you could get the team up on, you know, just sort of that observer pattern and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, it is just such a powerful library and can yeah. clean up so much of your code and just simplify so many things that um, it, it, it's hard for me to go back to writing code without it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's it's, it's it's very very elegant, and but it, it is a it's a different approach at solving problems. And if if you haven't seen that, then it just takes some getting used to. Yeah, the, and the learning curve is definitely there. It it is yeah. a high learning yeah. curve. I you know I don't I don't want to downplay that, but if you're not familiar with it, trust me, it is uh, very very cool. The last one that I want to throw out, this is sort of a late edition, and this is something that one of my developers brought to me here uh, just recently. Um, and I thought I'd just, you know, I, I'm not super familiar with it, but I'm very excited about what this could be. And this is a library called Coyote, C-O-Y-O-T-E. Uh, and this comes from uh, sort of the, I don't know if it's like a Skunkworks project from Microsoft. Uh, mm -hmm. But the idea is, is it's a bunch of pre-built libraries uh, or pre-built functionality to make asynchronous processing more doable, I'm going to say, right? So uh, what, what it comes with uh, out of the box is a replacement for uh, uh, system.task. So instead of just doing your, you know, system.threading.task, you now would use this uh, Microsoft.coyote.task. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, compatible with your regular tasking system and things like that. Uh, but what's pretty neat about it is that those tasks then uh, come with some additional um, functionality. So they uh, they provide some some logging functionality. They provide some additional reporting functionality and assertion functionality out there, so that if things go wrong, you've got kind of a nice easy way to diagnose those. So you know instead of just throwing an exception and not kind of knowing what's going on there it supplies some additional functionality around that task to mm -hmm. um, allow inspection of it, to allow uh, uh, 
um, proper uh, inspection maybe is, is a better way to put it, just to see exactly what went right or, or more likely what went wrong. Uh, in addition to that, uh, it supplies an implementation of the actor model. So if you've got uh, a system where you've got multiple different processes that need to cross communicate with each other, uh, they've got a pre-built set of actor objects that can subscribe to events, do processing for events, and publish events themselves. So if you've got sort of these, uh, you know, especially on the server side of things, if you're doing um, like a multiple system workflow, and you may need to have one of the systems queue up messages and send them to another system, um, but not process, you know, or continue processing until that secondary system is completed. Uh, it's got a really good implementation for that actor model built into it to do sort of this asynchronous uh, uh, messaging without mm -hmm. having to do a lot of uh, your own management of those objects. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of people in the past build these sort of, I'll call them like pseudo actor objects where they are firing off a bunch of events inside of them, or they raise a bunch of events, and then it becomes kind of a, an event management nightmare in the application. Uh, whereas this Coyote project uh, appears to be coming with like a pre-built actor object that we can do, you know, publish and subscribe type eventing in a really, really simple um, and sort of, I'll say like well thought out manner uh, is probably mm -hmm. the best way to do this. So. <laughs> Um, a great, great kind of, you know, again, this is one, one's brand new to me. I think we're, we're in sort of the evaluation phase. I think this was just published, like the 1.0 of this was published about a month or so ago, maybe even less than that. Okay. Um, but it sounds like this is being used over uh, on the server side for uh, Microsoft for a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. Great companion library for, um, again, that asynchronous processing. Just help us get our heads around it. Um, uh, and, you know, wrap our heads around it and just understand exactly what's going on and build code that's testable. That's the, sort of the big thing that Coyote gives us here. It gives us really great hooks for writing and, and, and testing out our code long-term. Yeah. Actually, the um, actor model was one of the things I built with reactive extensions. Nice. Um, we have like these nodes that they uh, send out events and some other nodes can subscribe to that using like... Uh, Reactive extensions dot where, sure. um, and it worked really well. And uh, the the team that took over was really upset about that decision. <laughs> and I and I didn't know uh, about the actor model at that time. I had uh, thought of that myself, and um, reinvented. And and then some <laughs> other guy came and said, "Oh, we could have built this in Acker.net within oh, uh, sure, a sure. day or two. Like, sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it it goes. They, you know, it's a great way to bring it all the way back to the beginning. You know, sometimes you just don't think like. I'm building something that maybe there's a pattern for. I've done this mm -hmm. so many times yeah. in my life. And then you talk to somebody else and they're like, yeah, what, why didn't you use ACA.net? They've already got that built there for you. And it's like, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't even realize that an actor, you know, like an actor was a, a thing, you know? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah that's a, it's a super great point. <laughs> so yeah. But it, it, it was kind of nice to hear that uh, th this is something that's actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. They weren't like throw it, throw it in the trash. He's out of his mind, right? You know, they're, it's good. It's yeah. good to be validated in that way for sure. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, but the the you said the task uh, another uh, like we we had used to use task now we use value task and this sounds like Microsoft is testing if if they should take that one step farther. Uh, yeah. So that well, well we'll see if that makes it into the into .NET six or something like that. Correct. Yeah, it's it's hard to say because I I feel like this is. Still very early on, you know, yeah. it's hard to say where exactly this will go, but 
yeah, it, it feels like maybe this could just end up getting rolled right in with everything else and just get mm -hmm. an even better way to, to do a lot of this type of development. I guess we'll see. <laughs> for sure. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, those are all the libraries that I want to talk about for today. Really cool. Yeah. It's, and, and really good to have an overview like that to, to see all of these, um, and, and hear from somebody who has used those successfully. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, uh, you know, sometimes just having, uh, you know, whether or not it's always the right tool, you know, maybe you don't want to use any of these tools, but just having that awareness that these exist opens up, you know, new doors for you. And you could say, oh, I, I was just trying to solve that same problem. And maybe you don't end up using reactive extensions or data flow, but you could find another library that's uh, compelling or, or usable to, to get in that same thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully this is helpful for people to, to get out there and, and build more resilient apps. Great. Well, thank you for being my guest. And this has been another episode of Dev Talk. We'll see each other again in two weeks. Bye-bye.